Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode will be hosted by Laurel Parker and Kylie Schmidt, who are third-year medical students at the Medical College of Georgia in partnership with Augusta University. This episode is about bleeding disorders, the primary and secondary disorders of hemostasis. Hope you enjoy! Hey future doctors, thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Laurel Parker. And my name is Kylie Schmidt, and we're both students in our third year at the Medical College of Georgia, and we'll be your hosts today. So let's say you've had a patient present with recurrent nosebleeds. There's a huge differential for disorders that can cause too much bleeding, so where are you going to begin? What do you ask about their past medical history, their family history, what tests do you want to order? So don't freak out yet. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a much better framework and understanding of primary and secondary disorders of hemostasis. These disorders require integration of normal physiology, knowing differences in pathophys, lab value interpretation, and complex thinking. So all of this makes them favorite questions of the USMLE. In this episode, we'll review normal physiology, cover common disorders, laboratory interpretations, and treatment options for these disorders. We'll be asking a lot of questions, so feel free to think about the answer before we say it and pause the episode if needed. This is a complex topic with minute details, so don't be discouraged if you miss a couple concepts. Use this review to identify knowledge gaps uh, you have or for a confidence booster as you enter studying for your exams and step one. Let's get to it. So to understand disorders of primary and secondary hemostasis, it's good to have an idea of what the steps are for primary and secondary hemostasis normally. We'll start with primary hemostasis. And so what are the steps of primary hemostasis? There are five. So there's injury, which causes vasoconstriction right afterward. Then we have exposure, platelet adhesion, activation, and aggregation. Great. So specific disorders that we'll talk about are related to platelet adhesion. So platelets binding von Willebrand factor via the G1P receptor. And then also disorders with aggregation. So platelets binding to fibrinogen via the GP2B3A receptors. And then platelets linking together by these connections. And Kylie... What is the goal of primary hemostasis? Our goal here is just to create a platelet plug. Nice. Okay, moving on to normal phys of secondary hemostasis. What's our goal here, Laurel? Well, we've created the platelet plug and now we want to stabilize it. Exactly. We have a few steps uh, in secondary hemostasis. That is very much an understatement. There are a lot of steps. We can split it up into a couple pathways, so intrinsic, extrinsic, and common. So what's our difference between the intrinsic and the extrinsic? So the extrinsic is triggered by endothelial injury. The exposed tissue factor activates factor 7, and then they form a complex, which activates factor 10 and then factor 9, of the common pathway. Exactly. And with the intrinsic pathway, instead of going straight from factor 7, which is moving towards 
activating the common pathway, we have a few more steps. So we start with activation of factor 12 and we end with activation of factor 7. That's something you may need to... factor 10, sorry. <laughs> That's something you may need to just memorize on your own. We then get to the common pathway, which started with the factor 10. Um, and this is where our intrinsic and extrinsic pathways combine. Factor 10 then activates factor 5, which activates factor 2, also known as thrombin. And that then activates fibrin, factor 1. This forms our stable fibrin clot. And we have a few blood tests, Laurel. What blood test measures function of the extrinsic pathway? That is a super high yield question, Kylie Schmidt. That would be prothrombin time. So that's PT. That's the abbreviation. Exactly. Sometimes when I'm answering questions, I don't see PT. I see INR. Yeah. What's that? What's this crazy INR everyone's talking about? That is a normalized value that some hospitals, some lab-based systems use. Most all of them do. Um, and it's just the international normalized ratio. And the most common value, or the most normal value for INR, is 1. Exactly. Sometimes you'll see higher values of INR. That's typically when we're treating patients um, with anticoagulants. So we're t our therapeutic range we're shooting for is 2 to 3. What about the blood test that measures the function of the intrinsic pathway, Laurel Parker? That would be PTT or partial thromboplastin time. Also, you can see it as APTT. Exactly. So now that we've gone over that, we can start talking about disorders. So, what are the most common symptoms of primary hemostatic disorders? So our primary hemostatic disorders are gonna present with petechiae, which are, they look like little dots on the skin, they're little micro hemorrhages. Um, also, epistaxis. This is a fancy word for um, recurrent nosebleeds. Exactly. And then a test that I commonly see, or it's commonly provided on the USMLE, is bleeding time. Mm -hmm. So would you expect bleeding time to be increased or decreased in these disorders? I would expect bleeding time to be increased. Exactly. Because, of course... We're bleeding too much. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We're out of platelets. Yeah. And is this ever done in clinic, bleeding time? No. Probably not. But USMLE really loves to provide it. <laughs> and Kylie, what's a normal platelet count? What should we be, you know, they give us a lot of values and what's normal? So normal here is between 150,000 and 450,000. And then when did, when? When do you see symptoms? That is a good question that Laurel and I have been burned on many times. <laughs> symptoms actually don't start until you're around below 50,000 mm -hmm. platelets. Yep. So getting into our disorders, the first one we're going to talk about is Bernard Solier. What is the defect here? What's the, give us a little pathophys. So pathophys of Bernard Solier. Laurel mentioned earlier the GP1B receptor, um, and that was used in our platelet adhesion. And so we are deficient in GP1B receptors in Bernard Soulier 
causing an issue with platelet adhesion. Mm -hmm. So the platelets and the von Willebrand factor, they can't stick together, they can't adhere, and so patients bleed too much. You have a bleeding disorder. And then, let's say we order a peripheral blood smear, a PBS. They love to show you that. They love it. What are we going to see in this disorder? So this is a great mnemonic. Um, so Bernard Soulier, BS, also could stand for big suckers. So you're going to see huge platelets on peripheral blood smear. Huge. And then let's say we get a CBC, we get that platelet count. Mm -hmm. What do we expect? Do we see decreased platelets, normal, increased platelets? So it is possible that you could see decreased platelets, but this is a qualitative disorder, meaning that we still have a good amount of platelets, we just can't adhere. So it's typical that it would be normal. You could have decreased. Very true. Next disorder we'll talk about is Glanzmann thrombosthenia. And so what's the defect here? So the other fun GP receptor you mentioned earlier is GP2B3A. It's a very fun one to say. You sound very smart. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have a deficiency of the GP2B3A receptor. That one is involved in platelet aggregation, which is our final step. Exactly. Of primary. So platelets can adhere to the fibrinogen, and then they can't adhere to each other as well. Let's say we get the peripheral smear here. What do we, what do we see? Do we see the, those big suckers? We do not see any big suckers here in Glanzmann thrombosthenia. <laughs> and then what about our platelet count? So this is also going to be generally normal because it's another qualitative disorder. We have enough platelets, they just can't aggregate. So true. Okay, next disorder is one of my favorites to learn about. It is ITP or immune thrombocytopenia. So. What do we expect the platelet count to be in this disorder? So the platelet count here is going to be decreased. Name really gives it away. The thrombocytopenia. Exactly. Low platelets. Don't miss that one. <laughs> uh, and then what is, what's the defect here? Why, what is going on? So this is an autoimmune disease. There are anti-GP2B3A um, receptor antibodies being formed. And those antibodies tag the platelets, and the spleen then destroys them. Mm -hmm. So how does someone get ITP? What are, what's causing this? That is a great question, Laurel. Like with many autoimmune diseases, we're not sure meaning idiopathic. <laughs> um, however, there are some causes that we've identified, like viral illnesses, malignancy, or some drug reactions. So true. And then let's say we suspect ITP, we get a bone marrow biopsy. What do we expect to see on said biopsy? So on this biopsy, we might see increased megakaryocytes as our bone marrow tries to replace the platelets that are getting destroyed. Exactly, exactly. And then, as a bonus, Kylie and I are big fans of monoclonal antibodies. And so, what's a common monoclonal antibody treatment for ITP? 
This is probably the first monoclonal antibody I ever learned. Rituximab. Mm. This is an anti-CD20. So true. It's a good one to know. It is. And then there are lots of other treatments for ITP. What are, what are some examples of some of the things you can do? So we could start by giving someone some steroids, um, some IV immunoglobulin or IVIG, uh, thrombocuitin receptor agonist, and then for refractory cases, um, we just take out the spleen, take out the destroyer. Yep, yep. And then, Kylie, to me, glansman thrombosthenia and ITP, both problems with the GP2V3A receptor. So how, do, how are we going to differentiate those? You know, that's a really good question, Laurel. And I think this is a good point to re-emphasize qualitative disorders versus quantitative disorders. So with glansman thrombosthenia, we have a deficiency, meaning, sorry, we have a deficiency in the GP2B3A receptors. So this is causing um, platelets to not be able to function. We still have platelets. They just don't function without that receptor. So this is a qualitative disorder. In ITP, our platelets are actually being destroyed. So then we will have a low number, meaning quantitative disorder. So true. Next, we're going to talk about the most common inherited bleeding disorder, and one that's a favorite of the USMLE. So, you know what that one is? I do. That would be von Willebrand disease. So true. What is the defect here? This one also has a little name giveaway. So we're going to have a deficiency or a defect in von Willebrand factor. And what's the normal, um, what does von Willebrand factor normally do? So this is going to help with that first um, step of the platelets, not the first step of primary hemostasis, but the first step that platelets are involved in. Um, and so that's platelet adhesion. So von Willebrand factor helps the platelets adhere to the basement membrane, um, as well as prevents the degradation of factor eight. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. And Kylie, what's with these Weibel Pilati bodies? So the Weibel Pilati bodies um, are inside of the endothelial cells. And when activated, they release these, uh, the von Willebrand factor that they store. We just really like to say Weibel Pilates bodies around here. We don't know what you're saying, right? <laughs> it's probably not the most high yield, but it's fun to say. But we like it. <laughs> and <laughs> what is the inheritance pattern of von Willebrand disease? By and large, inheritance pattern here is autosomal dominant. Mm -hmm. There are different types, but we're not going to get into those here. Low yield. Um, and then some common symptoms of von Willebrand disease as with all bleeding disorders as a whole, you can have easy bruising, nosebleeds, fancy term, epistaxis. You can have bleeding of the gums and the gingiva, petechiae, bleeding after surgery or after tooth extraction. So sometimes it'll say, patient goes to the dentist and bleeds you know, for a long time afterwards. Um, GI bleeding and also menorrhagia as well. All right, so for von Willebrand disease, what do we expect our platelet count to be? Well, Laurel, I would say the platelet count's probably going to be normal. And it is. What about bleeding time? 
Now the bleeding time, measure of platelet function, not quantity, but function, that is going to be increased. It is increased. Now what about prothrombin time, our PT? So our PT here is going to be normal. Mm, very good. And then what about PTT, our partial thromboplastin time? PTT is going to be normal. It could also be increased. It could. That's a sneaky one. That is a sneaky one because remember, von Willebrand factor helps to prevent degradation of factor VIII, which is in the intrinsic pathway measured by PTT. Excellent. And then what's this ristocetin cofactor assay that I'm hearing so much about? Laura Parker, I'm really glad that you asked that. Um, so ristocetin cofactor assay, I've been confused about almost all of M1 and M2 here. Um, but I did find out that ristocetin is um, an old antibiotic that they now can use in this assay. It activates von Willebrand's factor. So if there is von Willebrand factor in the body, then with the ristocetin cofactor assay, we will have platelet aggregation. If there's no von Willebrand factor, there will be no platelet aggregation with ristocetin cofactor assay. Excellent. And then how are we going to treat this? Is there, is there anything we can do? Great question. There in fact is something we can do. So desmopressin, which is used for many things, um, uh, it can be used for treatment of von Willebrand disease. It actually helps release that von Willebrand factor from the Weibel Pilati bodies. And so since von Willebrand disease also affects this coagulation cascade, this is a great segue into the disorders of secondary hemostasis. So there are a lot of secondary disorders to cover. We'll just start with the most common. So, Laura Parker, what is the most common disorder of secondary hemostasis? That would be hemophilia A, and that is an X-linked recessive disorder. Exactly. These hemophilias get a little confusing with the inheritance pattern, so remember that X-linked recessive for hemophilia A. Which factor here is deficient? That would be factor 8, and the mnemonic here is hemophilia A, factor eight, so it's A8. Eight. <laughs> eight. <laughs> um, patients will present very similarly with any of the types of hemophilia. So there's going to be hemarthrosis, meaning bleeding into the joints. You can also have a lot of large palpable ecchymoses. Um, also GI bleeding is possible, um, but basically just a lot of bleeding. But hemarthrosis is something that USMLE loves, bleeding into the joints. So Laurel, what are we going to see with PT and APTT? I'm glad you asked because this is a huge way to differentiate these things. So factor 8 is the one that is deficient here. Factor 8 is in the intrinsic pathway. We measure that by PTT and, you know, it's deficient. So we're going to bleed longer. PTT is going to be elevated. Mm -hmm. PT, which is a measure of the extrinsic pathway, is going to be normal. It's going to be normal. Really, the only time that PT is elevated is factor, factor 7 is affected. Mm -hmm. Okay. Treatment-wise, we're really only going to treat during trauma, unless it's extremely severe. We replace the factor that's deficient, give them some factor 8, 
Also here we can use desmopressin because remember that will help release von Willebrand factor from where? That'd be the libel Pilate bodies. So that can help stabilize the factor eight that we're giving. As we mentioned a minute ago, Laurel and I love a good monoclonal antibody. So I threw this one in there. It's probably not the most high yield, but it is interesting. So emicizumab. Um, this bridges factors 9 and 10, basically replacing the, the activity of factor 8. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay, one of our favorite things to do, a sidebar. Mixing study sidebar. Laurel, what is a mixing study? I'm glad you asked, Kylie. It's something that has confused me for most of the M2 year. But now, now that we're M3s, we get it. We get it. Mixing study. Here's how you do it. It is a measure of the patient's plasma. So you draw the blood, spin it down, get the plasma out. So then you have a bunch of plasma from the patient. Then you mix it together, literally, with normal plasma, like standard normal control plasma that has all the factors in it, working great. You mix those together, then you remeasure the PTT and the PT. Mm -hmm. So, Laurel, what would you expect if it was a deficiency in a factor, such as maybe hemophilia A, mm. which is deficiency in factor eight, um, what would happen after the mixing study? So, if we have one of these, the patient's plasma, deficient in factor eight, and then normalized plasma, we mix them together, the PT and PTT normalize. Exactly. You only need about 50% of the activity to have a normal PT and PTT. Exactly. So, I mean, if, if we either normalize or we don't normalize, and you said normalizing happens if there was a deficiency, mm -hmm. what would you be thinking about on your differential if it didn't normalize? If we mix those two plasmas together and it doesn't normalize, then we might be thinking this could be due to an inhibitor of one of those coagulation oh. factors. So even if you add more fact, like the new factors mm -hmm. from the control blood, yeah. it's still inhibited? It is, in fact, because the plasma from the patients, the inhibitors that are there, are causing the new factors mm. to be inhibited as well. Man. Those mm -hmm. antibodies, high affinity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's hemophilia A. Hemophilia B and C. Both extremely rare, but these are the other two hemophilias. Um, these are going to be deficiencies in what, Laurel? So, hemophilia B is a fact is a deficiency in factor nine. Exactly. Inheritance pattern here also X-linked recessive, Perfect. just like A. And then hemophilia C is a factor 11 deficiency. And this one, this is different. It's autosomal recessive. Perfect. Um, these three hemophilias, A, B, and C, all will present similarly with the hemarthrosis, the large palpable ecchymosis. Um, but lab value-wise, they'll also present similarly. But what would you expect the lab values to be? So that's a great question. And because we're concerned with factor 8, 9, and 11, these are all intrinsic, 
for all of them, the PTT is going to be elevated and the PT is normal. Exactly. And just one more time for the audience, Laurel. After a mixing study, what would happen with any of these hemophilias? We would have the normalization. Normal PTT. Exactly, because they are all deficiencies, not inhibitors. Okay, so that's pretty much all the disorders of the intrinsic pathway. Now for one extrinsic pathway disorder. Could you possibly guess which factor is deficient in this disorder? I'd have to guess factor seven. That's, that's a genius move, Laurel Parker. And is this one... Um, Autosomal recessive, axling recessive. It is autosomal recessive. Exactly. Um, and then clinical manifestations of specifically factor seven deficiency is um, GI hemorrhage. You can also get intracranial hemorrhage. Okay. What would we expect our PT and APTT to be? For a factor seven deficiency, we would expect an elevated PT prothrombin time, because of course, factor seven, extrinsic pathway, PT, and a normal PTT. Exactly, Laurel Parker. That is beautiful. Um, also, I just want to clarify, Laurel and I are saying APTT and PTTT, that's too many T's, APTT and PTT interchangeably. They are pretty much the same thing. Sometimes they'll give you APTT, sometimes they'll give you PTT, but they are pretty much the same. One is activated, one's not, but using them inter interchangeably. All right, so how might we treat this disorder? So, we don't have enough factor seven, so let's give them some more. Give them factor seven, mm -hmm. perfect, easy enough. Moving on to some disorders that affect both pathways, both intrinsic and extrinsic. Laurel, you just finished your peds rotation. What vitamin is given as a shot to newborn babies? This is a very high yield fact, Kyle Schmidt. It is vitamin K. Yes, and why might we do that? This is because babies lack the intestinal bacteria that normally produces vitamin K. So adults, no problem. Infants can't do it. Vitamin K is important because it acts as the cofactor for the gamma carboxylation of specific coagulation factors. So we need vitamin K to prevent bleeding. We do. Which specific factors were you talking about there? This is another high yield point. <laughs> These would be factors 2, 7, 9, 10, protein C, and protein S. We have yet to come up with a good mnemonic for that one. If you have one, please email us. That <laughs> uh, is just one you got to memorize. Um, of these, which has the shortest half-life? That would be factor seven. Exactly. And why is that important at all? So because of this, because factor seven has a short half-life, the PT, the prothrombin time, is elevated. And the PTT is only elevated in severe cases. Oh, because the other ones last longer. Exactly. And they're part of the intrinsic pathway. That makes sense. Okay. And how are we going to treat here? 
We're going to treat, we're going to give vitamin K, Mm -hmm. and if needed, a blood transfusion as well. Some other causes of newborn vitamin K deficiency include uh, maternal vitamin K deficiency. So that is going to be more early onset after birth, within 24 hours. Also, strict breastfeeding can cause more of a late onset um, newborn vitamin K deficiency bleeding. That's within like two to eight months after birth. Okay. So a similar issue can be caused in adults with administration of a vitamin K antagonist. Do you know what this is? As a matter of fact, I do, because I see it in clinic all the time now. People are on warfarin. Ah, yes, warfarin. Um, What is warfarin's mechanism of action, Laurel? So, warfarin inhibits epoxide reductase, which is an enzyme in the liver that activates vitamin K. So, the activated or reduced form of vitamin K as we said, is required for the gamma carboxylation of glutamate residues on factor 2, 7, 9, 10, and protein C and S. That was beautiful. Um, There is a very notable adverse effect of warfarin. Laura Parker, could you explain that for us? Absolutely. We want to be on the lookout for warfarin-induced skin necrosis. Oh. Mm -hmm. Why does this happen? So... When you start giving warfarin, protein C and S, which are anticoagulant factors, they have shorter half-lives than the rest of the pro-coagulant factors. Mm -hmm. So we have an imbalance. We have more pro-coagulation, more clotting, than more anticoagulation, more bleeding. So we get this transient initial hypercoagulable state. Mm -hmm. And then microthrombi form, then this forms infarcts and tissue necrosis. Yep. Is there possibly a way to prevent this from happening? In fact, there is, if we heparin bridge. Ah, heparin bridge. Now, this is a very important concept that took me forever to understand. So, warfarin takes a minute to kick in because it's working on an enzyme in the liver, while heparin works in the blood to inhibit the factors that are already there in the blood. So it works a lot quicker than warfarin. So what we do is start on heparin and bridge to warfarin. Beautiful. Okay, our last disorder, sadly. DIC. Laura Parker, what does DIC stand for? It stands for disseminated intravascular coagulation. Exactly. And this this is not a disease. This is more of a syndrome, meaning what? Meaning... It's a collection of symptoms, really, and it could be due to a lot of different etiologies. Exactly. Um, Some of those interesting ones include snake bites, obstetric complications, and malignancy. One that Laurel and I both love to study is sepsis, especially gram-negative organisms, Mm -hmm. which can lead to DIC. Exactly. And then, Kylie, you mentioned malignancy. Mm -hmm. Let's say someone comes in, you get the peripheral smear, you see our rods. Mm. Taking me way back, Laura Parker. Mm -hmm. This would be acute promyelocytic leukemia. Those our rods can activate the coagulation cascade and cause DIC. Exactly. So basic pathophys of DIC is one of the triggers we just talked about causing systemic activation of the clotting cascade. The platelets 
and the clotting factors are then being consumed by that systemic clotting, and we end up with what, Laurel, systemically? Systemically, we have massive bleeding, hemorrhage. You can get in-organ failure due to the clotting, mm -hmm. and one of the classic terms for the USMLE is oozing from blood from the IV lines. Mm -hmm. so they you love have, that. They love it. You have both clotting and bleeding Ooh. simultaneously. Man. How, um, how do we treat here? we got to find the underlying cause. There's not really a great treatment for DIC, unfortunately. Find the underlying cause. Um, and this... Laurel is pretty, you know, urgent, pretty poor prognosis. Definitely. So this will probably be a clinical diagnosis. But uh, since time is not real on board's questions, they'll probably hand you a coag panel and a CBC. What would we expect on that? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is the classic. You'll have a huge table of things with up and down arrows. And you're going to have to know all of these different lab values, and if they're increased, if they're decreased, what we'd expect. So we, we will go through them. First, prothrombin time, PT, increased. We're bleeding. APTT, partial thromboplastin time, increased. Again, we're bleeding. Bleeding time, increased. Because, of course, bleeding time is a measure of platelet function, mm -hmm. and our platelets are being consumed because we are clotting. So bleeding time is also increased. One that is decreased, which is important to know, is fibrinogen. D-dimer is increased because we have the breakdown of clots. Mm -hmm. Our platelet count is going to be low uh, because our platelets are being consumed because we're clotting. And then our hematocrit is also going to be low because we are bleeding. That was beautiful, Laurel Parker. Um, yeah, the boards really love to give you a huge table with all those up and down arrows. So this is probably a good one to go back and listen to. Okay, that was a lot of information. So let's review just a bit. So we talked about broad differential with bleeding disorders. One way you can narrow that down is by deciding whether the clinical presentation looks more like a disorder of primary hemostasis or a disorder of secondary hemostasis. So what would a disorder of primary hemostasis present like, Laurel? So this would be more recurrent nosebleeds, the petechiae, the small little pinpoint microhemorrhages. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what about secondary? This would be more hemarthrosis, bleeding into the joints, and then large palpable ecchymoses. Great. Mm -hmm. And then another way that we can try to differentiate these is with our lab values. So what lab values would you expect with primary disorders of hemostasis. So with these, this is um, going to be an elevated bleeding time because that's a measure of platelet function. Also, we could have uh, either a low or a normal platelet count depending on if it is quantitative or qualitative disorder. Now, the only other thing is von Willebrand disease. If you'll remember, von Willebrand disease also affects the intrinsic pathway because von Willebrand factor um, is going to stabilize factor eight. Exactly. And what about the changes that we would expect with secondary disorders? So with secondary, um, we would see either an elevated PT or, and or, 
and elevated APTT. Good. And then let's say we have one of the hemophilias and we have we do a mixing study. Mm-hmm. What is going to happen then? Great. I'm glad we've gone over this so many times because <laughs> if you take away one thing from this podcast, it should be mixing studies. So mixing studies will normalize the PT or APTT with deficiency of a factor. They will not normalize with an inhibitor of a factor. Exactly. And yeah, what is the most common disorder of primary hemostasis? That would be von Willebrand disease. Exactly. And Laurel, just to review again, what's the inheritance pattern of von Willebrand disease? That would be autosomal dominant. Exactly. What is the most common secondary? That would be hemophilia A. Exactly. What is the inheritance pattern of hemophilia A? That would be X-linked recessive, much like hemophilia B. Mm-hmm. But... Well, is it like hemophilia C? No. No shot. Woo. Hemophilia C is autosomal recessive. Oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. But something to keep in mind, 30% of the cases of hemophilia A are sporadic. So don't be fooled by a negative family history. You get it? That's a thinker. So, Kylie, which clotting factor has the shortest half-life? That's factor seven. It is. And then warfarin inhibits the gamma carboxylation of which factors? Two, seven, nine, ten, protein C and protein S. Excellent. And it does this through the inhibited activation of which vitamin? That's vitamin K for the bebe. Exactly. And what's that adverse effect of warfarin that we're looking out for? That is warfarin-induced skin necrosis. Finally, what is Laurel and Kylie's favorite cause of DIC? Sepsis. (laughs) So if you've made it this whole way, congratulations. We asked a lot of questions. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Again, I'm Laurel Parker. And I'm Kylie Schmidt. And we want to say good luck with studying. And remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.